0: I remember asking my mom oh mom is msg bad and you know my mom would like literally toss msg into everything she was cooking at home and she said to me as we were driving home if msg was bad for us we would have died a very long time ago like this is this is my mom's logic and you know i again probably you know mother knows best and i think it's flawless but yeah it's it's that attitude that kind of resilience i think I think that's what makes it, yeah, kind of all click.
1: Today I'm wrapping up a fortnight of discussions about anti-Asian racism. It's been a heavy two weeks. Uh, I've reflected a lot. I've learned a lot. I've felt really sad, angry and frustrated. And I've been heartened by the strength, positivity and creativity of people I've spoken to. I'm also buoyed and strengthened by the possibility and the hope that conversations like this might Maybe, hopefully, make a difference. These chats, of course, made to think a lot about my own first-generation immigrant Australian identity. As the child of a Jewish Holocaust survivor and an English rose, hi, mum, the idea of belonging was something that was there. We didn't maybe talk about it, but we somehow knew how dangerous being an outsider was. But I'm starting to realise now that there was a kind of super Aussie strand to our family life that probably squashed a few other bits of who we are. I'm still unpicking it and thinking about it. But, of course, Judaism is very different to being Asian in Australia. Jews can pass for mainstream in an English colony like Australia or in European countries. That's why they made us sew stars onto our clothing. But anyway... I am really thrilled to be finishing off this fortnight uh, with a chat with Mike Swantalisit.
0: Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Mike launched more of something good right at the start of the pandemic impact in Australia. He runs it with his partner, Muriel Ann Rickrefrente. They are designers and food lovers based in Sydney. Mike, welcome to Dirty Linen. Thank you so much for being here. Oh,
0: thank you so much for having me. I liked that Um Bit about the stars being sewn on—that was very good.
1: Well, you know, it's like if you want to, if you're different, but you don't look different. Yeah, what do you do? I mean, there's so many ways of othering, aren't there? And I suppose making people look different with such a like a blunt instrument as something sewn onto clothing—that's one way of doing it.
0: For sure, there's huge, huge uh, symbolism in that act itself.
1: There's lots of ways of, I guess, putting people into ghettos. Um, Mike, tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: Uh, yeah, so Mike, uh, uh, originally from Melbourne, actually grew up in the sleepy suburbs of uh, Springvale, crazy uh, melting pot of culture, I suppose, in Melbourne. It's kind of a nice, uh, it's a nice spot that people like to go to on the weekends, but. Um, yeah, I grew up in Springs Island in the 90s where, yeah, during the weekdays, it wasn't necessarily as fun. Um, but I guess to the rough side of that kind of really helped broaden my perspective on uh, at least just more my experience of like being an Asian Australian uh, and now recently living up to Sydney the last two or three years, kind of slowly, uh, I guess, relearning what that experience is for people out here as well, especially those from the West and how different that is to, I guess, yeah, there's this very big divide um, here uh, in, in regards to, uh, I guess it's definitely like a class thing, um, if I'm going to be blunt. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of really kind of uh, pushed me, as suppose, in terms of like the direction that I'm going in with, uh, with where, or where my life's kind of gone. I kind of grew up thinking I wanted to, be uh, an accountant or a banker or all those kind of stereotype things as a way of trying to escape, I think, the kind of rough neighborhoods and poverty that I guess we were kind of in and somehow ended up uh, falling into art and design, which I guess if you were to go back and tell my parents again, they would um, agree that it was a, what what did they say? Uh, It translated from wow to pretty much like a homeless person's job. I'm um, just was nothing. Uh, oh there's a term for it in Lao, which I think uh, carries over to Thai, which is silicon Hang, which is yeah, just pretty much just like a drop kick kind of a job. So it was a, a rough couple of years convincing them that it was going to work out. but hey, here we are and we've we made a we made a cool website. I guess that's something to show. <laughs>
1: Ah, uh, the website is super cool. So, yeah, tell me what prompted more of something good, and and tell us a bit about it.
0: Yeah, for sure. So, more of something good, or uh, MSG for short, is um, this project that me and my partner Muriel started around uh, February, March of 2020. So, this was kind of the time uh, I think everyone had just started hearing about, you know, the coronavirus right before Christmas. And then the holidays happened and in Australia, everyone kind of, uh, I guess, tried to forget about it a little bit. Um, but once the news started picking back up, I think the thing for us that was really noticeable was all of the kind of uh, hush chitter chatter and all of the, uh, I guess, inappropriate jokes that would kind of go on in, you know, the friend groups or the workplace. And it had a very familiar flavor to it. I think we couldn't put our we couldn't put our finger on it at the time, but reflecting now, it, it just felt very kind of, it felt very much like high school days where this uh, kind of uh, othering that was happening, people kind of talking about you without necessarily talking to you or talking to you about you without mentioning your name uh, per se. Um, but that kind of energy um, kind of around us, we kind of it started getting on our nerves a little bit and, you know alongside that we started just kind of seeing the kind of beating that the community was taking in the media uh, one particular example was in the herald sun i'm pretty sure on, a, on the front page they published a story or they published a graphic and it was like a, a face mask and it was like a red face mask that someone had photoshopped the chinese flag over and over the top of it they had written uh pandemonium like with the pun panda oh yeah
1: I remember that (laughs) Um, it was so gross
0: yeah so yeah that kind of that article was kind of part of one of the kind of like uh, tipping points for us that's when we actually started thinking like oh wow like this this is starting to turn really ugly um we were really you know we were coming home after work just feeling really frustrated and really helpless I guess um, you know, we weren't being directly affected per se, but you just had this feeling in the back of our minds of like, oh, like we can't even like go out to the grocery store um, or we can't even like walk down the street without thinking twice. It, it felt like I was back, felt like I was back home in Springvale in the 90s and you couldn't walk around in the evenings anymore. And we live like in leafy Chippendale. So it was, it was a really odd feeling, especially as stories started to kind of build up you know, people being kind of spat at, um, people getting beat up. Um, you know, even there was a, a case where, a, an elderly person, uh, had a heart attack, I'm pretty sure in Chinatown and people were just like not willing to kind of resuscitate him purely because of, uh, the fear of coronavirus coming from Asian people. So it was, yeah, it was, it was just, it was wild, just kind of what was happening. And the thing that I think really, Put everything into gear was when we found a Wikipedia link uh, that was actually uh, compiled articles uh, and a whole list of uh, xenophobic attacks against people because of coronavirus. And I'm pretty sure the list is still up, but like it was a crazy amount of articles happening from all over the world. And at that point, it really kind of put things into perspective for us. And we kind of decided okay, like we need to. I don't know. It felt weird that we had this kind of like sense of duty to do something. But at the same time, we, you know, we kind of do, I mean, we're very fortunate to kind of work in design where we just kind of sit on a computer all day. I guess that kind of guilt for us was what pushed us to like go out and do something. And we we have heaps of experience, you know, putting together exhibitions and doing these things as well. So I guess it was kind of second nature to just go like, let's, Let's get art. Let's get the art community together. Let's get our friends together and let's just make something positive. Let's make something beautiful and let's um, try and just shift the narrative away from what it was currently being portrayed as in the mainstream media.
1: Yeah. Well, I love it. So everyone can look at the site at moreofsomethinggood.com or look at it on Instagram. Um, explain to us what it is
0: it's uh it kind of um if you jump on the website it kind of does what it says on the tin um maybe it's a bit exaggerated but we kind of say it's the number one online illustrated uh food directory um but yeah i mean that's exactly what it is the The idea is pretty simple but i think maybe that's why it works is we you know we reach out to artists we ask them what their favorite um Asian dishes are from their favorite Asian restaurants. And then they illustrate the dish and share a story. And then we kind of like plug that restaurant um, on maps and then it becomes like a, yeah, and free online directory for people to just go and just check out all these places that people are recommending. It started out really small as well. I think we only had maybe 20 or so artists at the start. We thought it was something that we would do once and we'd only kind of carry for about a month or two, but we're over a year in and we've worked with over a hundred artists. There's a, you know, we've got submissions from all over Australia, maybe minus Northern territory, uh, and Tassie, but yeah, it's, it's it's been a huge, it's created such a huge network and through it, I think, um, you know, a lot of people, we kind of put a lot of focus as well on trying to put spotlight on artists who may not necessarily get the kind of opportunities, um, before to get these kind of opportunities, like uh, we try to reach out to kind of like artists who don't have as much of a renown and kind of put them side by side with some of these bigger artists and just, you know, kind of create a bit of a buzz and just almost introduce people to other people through it. It's kind of been a really nice uh, community bonding uh, experience, if anything.
1: Yeah, well, it is so up and positive and you know it's all about stuff that people love um and the comments um from the artists are quite varied um yeah like some of them are really simple some of them have got an anecdote about you know when I eat this I feel like this um yeah I think they're really they're really moving I mean what kind of impact do you think it has on somebody who is you know who is an artist who who does one of these like do you think it's what, yeah, what kinds of feedback have you had from the artists about how it makes them feel?
0: I think um, I think a lot of the time because it's uh, because it's kind of a, uh, I guess, somewhat of a charitable kind of a thing, a lot of the big artists kind of see, I think they kind of see it as a way of kind of giving back to the community and as a way for them to kind of like take a step away from, I guess, where they kind of work and yeah, just do something for the love of, for the love of just, uh, their identity. A lot of our artists are Asian Australian as well. And so I think they really kind of see the, uh, they see how, like what they, what they're doing is kind of feeding back in, um, to the loop, but for a lot of the kind of younger kind of unknown artists, I think they get, they're just like super stoked to be part of something so big I guess in uh, relative to kind of what they are kind of used to doing. I remember one of the artists talking to us um, because we do a series called Good Supermarket as well, where we sell prints for the artists. And I remember one of the artists saying that they had never done prints before, which is, um, it's kind of really nice to be able to be that kind of incubator for a lot of these people who will probably go on to do really amazing things and probably forget about us as well, but um, to be able to give them that stepping stone, I think is a great way for, to introduce them to, I guess, the more business side of um, the art scene. I think for us uh, being artists as well and coming from that background of exhibiting, uh, we know all too well, just how hard it is for people to reach out to galleries and, you know, create opportunities for themselves. So it's been a nice way to kind of mentor and coach a few artists through how they could go about potentially getting their work. Oh,
1: that's so brilliant that must be so satisfying um it's,
0: yeah it's kind of paying it forward
1: yeah so nice and do you you know from a um from an anti-racism perspective do you think it's made a difference
0: it's a it's a tough one to say we don't um i wish there was a google analytics for a, a <laughs> yes. racism percentage in the population that would go down but uh i guess yeah. In, in my kind of, in my kind of experience of racism, or maybe not even racism, but like in my experience of uh, talking to people who I guess are, are more kind of, you know, not exposed to these kind of like things, uh, culture wise, maybe like a little bit ignorant or just detached completely, just having that out there, um, really makes a big difference. It, I think for us, we're trying not to. As much as we can, we're trying not to water down the uh, stories, and we're trying not to water down um, what the artists are trying to say. We're trying to just kind of present it um, exactly how it is. And I think for a lot of viewers, especially kind of allies and people adjacent, they they can just kind of take it in as it is. And we're trying—we're never really trying to tell people what to do. Either, I guess that's what makes it so good that it's a directory. It's kind of there for people to absorb. We've definitely had had a lot of conversations with um, friends and allies about kind of MSG and what we do, and a lot of, a lot of the time it's opened their eyes to just how much something is. I guess something that um, a lot of people may take for granted as well on day to day basis, but like food and how much it means to people and how much weight uh, food carries from a point of view of just uh, memories, but even just kind of culture as well and what it means for identity. Um, yeah, it's surprisingly surprisingly powerful, I think, some of the stuff that's kind of been going out. But, um, yeah, maybe we need to do a survey <laughs> to see if anyone's become less racist.
1: Are you less racist now than you were when you first looked <laughs> at this site?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I dare anybody um, – who is racist to go to hojack and try their chalkweight dl and not come out less racist i mean food <laughs> food really does that to people i think
1: i love the fact that it's msg as well because monosodium glutamate does have such a i don't know like it's such a a flashpoint for people and you know as it's been sort of i guess deconstructed in recent years, you know, the this whole idea of, uh, you know, quote, unquote, Chinese restaurant syndrome, like people who think that they have a, a certain impact from eating dishes that have got MSG in them and the fact that, you know, scientifically that's been, yeah, there's no scientific basis to that and there's MSG in all kinds of foods from tomatoes to parmesan cheese and there's no tomato salad effect. Um Is I mean, tell me, tell me. I'm sure it's not accidental that it's MSG. Can can you talk about your thinking there?
0: Yeah, for sure. I I mean, we kind of we we both kind of work in kind of the design in the design world and around kind of branding as well. And a lot of the time, we're dealing with taglines, and we've we've grown a huge aversion to, I guess, cliches and cheesiness. And when we started to do the project, we were adamant that it shouldn't be something that felt. Uh, disingenuous or it shouldn't feel too much like it's uh, trying really hard to be this uh, gatekeeper or to be this uh, maverick uh, for the community. In- instead, we kind of thought, oh, I like, yeah, on purpose, we kind of chose MSG and abbreviated it to something that I guess even sounds kind of clunky too. more of something good. <laughs> um, just as a way of just keeping it like super authentic. Like for us, it reminded us of the language um, that was used in a lot of the kind of the immigrant run restaurants that we kind of grew up with in the kind of nineties and how, how honest it was. Like if anything, there's a lot of jokes that probably were made about kind of the broken English used in those restaurants. But for us, that, that, that for us is kind of such a show of resilience, you know, the, these people coming, coming over, learning a second language, trying to start businesses as well to kind of feed families and create a new future for their kids. It's, um think that's something that's completely overlooked especially the aesthetic as well like um i think a lot of people could recognize straight away that our, our aesthetic was so busted and reminded them so much of yeah like signage uh outside restaurants and stuff and you know coming from design it's almost like the complete opposite of what you would ever do because it didn't respect negative space and it was super shouty but again it's the it's this idea of resilience this idea of being economically savvy if you only get like an a four size sheet for a sign, why wouldn't you use the entire space to put the name of your restaurant like to me it's um yeah there's, there's something there's something there that I think uh, is is being overlooked and I think there's a, definitely a spirit there that we're trying to capture through msg
1: wow I, I mean I feel like I've felt all the things that you're, you're saying, but uh, for you to articulate it like that so beautifully, it's, uh, it's so clever and um, yeah, I just, I love it even more now.
0: (laughs) I mean, yeah, it it is kind of a bit of a, it is kind of a bit of a middle finger to the anti-MSG kind of crowd as well. Like I remember I remember being you know, somewhere in high school when MSG was kind of brought up uh, in terms of like the bad effects it was having or supposedly having on people. And I remember asking my mom, Oh mom, is MSG bad? And you know, my mom would like literally toss MSG into everything she was cooking at home. And she said to me, as we were driving home, if MSG was bad for us, we would have died a very long time ago. Like This is, <laughs> this is my mom's logic. And you know, I, Again, probably you know, mother knows best, and I think it's flawless. But yeah, it's it's that attitude, that kind of resilience. I think I think that's what makes it, yeah, kind of all click.
1: I love it. Um, can I read out one one of them to you? Number eighty-seven, um, course meal, crispy Peking duck by Leon Truong. So it's um, from Old Kingdom, eighty-two Victoria Street, Richmond. Uh, so. Leon writes, uh, Peking duck is great, a celebration shared with family and friends over an air-blown, roasted, succulent duck. Mmm. Anyways, I feel like white people have slowly co-opted the discussion around ethnic food, whether to prove their locality, show off their knowledge, the mind is hot, or to justify their fetishes. I'm quite impressed with how seamlessly they can integrate ethnic food into their art aesthetic. Shout-out to QP Art. Even more impressed with the nuance with which they're allowed to discuss, to debate or to love it, whereas I feel like I'm restricted to telling a story that's only just palatable enough for white taste buds, like that one sad anecdote about school lunch trauma, white bread envy. So as much as I love that white people appreciate the food or the culture, it would mean so much to me if they just told me they were like jealous.
0: It's pretty powerful, isn't
1: it? (laughs) That is just a punch. That is so strong.
0: I'm pretty sure we got, uh, we got Leon in on the second round of MSG. And when that quote came through, I I think we had to take a step back just because, and it it almost kind of made sense. Like the first round we sent everything out, everything, everyone was kind of on the same wavelength, solidarity wise, um, sent in all these very kind of like heartfelt, lovely anecdotes. And then Leon came through and he said, I think he said exactly what was on everyone's mind and probably what everybody has always wanted to say, but just would never dare to write into an artist quote. And and uh, we really loved when he sent that through.
1: Yeah. I think it's, it's really strong. Um, yeah, I mean, did did that open up another strand of, of kinds of artist statements in it or did, did they all just sort of everyone, everyone comes at it from their own angle?
0: I think everyone has kind of taken like a different spin. Some people have like decided to take it down more of a kind of fantasy kind of a route. Some people have been really personal. I think with Leon's, it, it, Leon's is, is such an interesting... Um, I guess an interesting hot take on kind of where the scene is at. I think there's a lot of truth in it. And there's a lot of feelings that I guess we share as well with what he's saying. Um, and whether or not he's done, he's done this deliberately or not, but I think what he's, the way he's even written the quote, I think is genius because in, in his kind of quote, he talks about this idea of, um, he talks about this idea, uh, uh, of, um, I guess, uh, I guess identity being performative and for the Asian Australian identity, a lot of the time uh, we get kind of put up either on a pedestal or we get kind of like shoved onto the lower shelf in terms of like how our story is being told. Um, A lot of the time, the stories that we're, I'm going to say allowed, because at the end of the day, somebody has to kind of sign off on it, Um, allowed to tell. And he talks about this idea of uh, the classic uh, asian australian story of oh my lunch is different to everybody else's and it's smelly experience which is a very valid experience for a lot of people but i think he's talking about this almost becoming a bit of a character trope um and something that we almost kind of like put out or the kind of stories that we have to tell or the ones that i think are the less spicy versions of um our experience that are more yeah, palatable palatable white people And he does that in his quote with the start of his quote being, Oh, this is what a roast duck is. And isn't it lovely? Blah, 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 blah. Anyway. And then he cuts into actually how he really feels. And I think a lot of the time there's a, especially kind of, I I, I talk about it a lot with friends, how, I guess for us, uh, especially people who've come in on the kind of later wave of, um, immigrant parents uh, around like the seventies and eighties, or mostly from kind of Southeast Asian countries, we don't have the luxury of kind of being here um, for a long time that we have like an established uh, community per se. Um, But we also are in the in-between phase right when the internet started, where you can very easily find your community and your people now online to share stories. We're kind of a little bit of the odd part um, where where obviously I think the next generation for us are probably going to have a little less trouble than we are. Like, um, I've already heard stories about, um, friends of friends who are packing their kids like homemade versions of, you know, uh, sorry, fr- uh, white friends of friends who are already making their versions of bun me to kind of like for their kids to take to preschool and stuff, you know, like they're already eating kimchi in the household and stuff like that. Like that wasn't a thing for us. And I think that's kind of why that story and for Leon to point it out is slowly not becoming a real kind of shared narrative anymore. Uh, and, and yeah, I guess we're not, we're also not a monolithic culture either. It's so varied. And I think he is, there's an anger from him as well that that's about kind of the nuances in which we can talk about food and I guess a bit of a, a bit of a gripe, I suppose, in which when we do share these stories and when they are absorbed by kind of uh, white people, they they kind of get to take it in and then they get to reshare it in their way. And we almost get to, we, we almost uh, are forced to applaud them for telling us our stories back to them. And they have the, this range that they're allowed to, um, tell this to, to retell stories but for us we're so limited in terms of what we can do I remember when uh, on MasterChef they had there was this one episode where it was like an all Asian uh, all Asian cast and it was such a huge deal for people and everyone was like yeah representation um, and then the comedian Ronnie Chang was like oh uh, yeah isn't that great like that's um, an all Asian cast for a TV show but um, the Asians have to cook that's the only way they can um, like be, have the spotlight. And I think, you know, as harsh as that is, I think there is something to that, especially in Australian media, where, yes, you can have your diversity quota, but you have to be doing the things that we are okay with you doing.
1: Yeah. Wow. That's killer. It's, yeah. So... It's really interesting. We had, so one of the one of the people that was there cooking on that day was Khan Ong and we chatted to him on the podcast last week. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I don't know. He said that they didn't realise that, you know, they were having a moment until it was pointed out to them. They were just there doing their thing in the throes of the competition. It wasn't really, they were just in it. It wasn't perhaps time to reflect. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I I watched that and I loved it, and I think it was because the the host Melissa Leong felt it and pointed it out. And I think you know, I guess she wasn't there cooking; she was there like running the show, and that was that was really cool. But yeah, I guess it, it, representation is just. I mean, it's just part of the story, isn't it? It's not the answer. It's like people have to be, um, yeah represented and and present, but they have to be doing what it is they want to do. And they have to be there being, you know, you know, allowed, as you say, to be who it is that they want to be. And then, you know, and then to change that and be someone else, if they want to be someone else, it's just, yeah. Presence isn't, isn't the end of it. That's for sure.
0: Totally. And, uh, you know, just kind of being that, that kind of in between kind of generation, I think a lot of us, I, mean, I don't want to speak I don't want to speak for everybody. But for me specifically, i um I'm very much a cynic when it comes to this kind of stuff, even though we try to do as much positive work as we can. It's almost um almost when we see it, uh, when we see it, our first gut reaction is always to be skeptical, like what's the motivation or you know, how did they get this? over the line. What are they, what are they getting out of this by doing it? Um, Which is kind of sad that um, that's our first reaction. I think I'm hoping that like all the, all the work that we do now for the next generation, they, they, they aren't as cynical, you know, they kind of see it more as a norm and they are able to kind of um, properly celebrate it. (laughs) Unlike, uh, unlike I do. Um, I remember I, got right, I, I don't think it was a quote in a book, but it was actually a friend, uh, another writer, uh, Emma Doe. We tried to do, we tried our hand in a podcast a very, very long time ago. We only did one episode. Um, It didn't go anywhere. It was terrible. But the one great quote that we, that I remember I pulled out of that was uh Emma talking about how, you know, right now we have to do these things of almost uh, forcing representation and for the lack of a better words, kind of having diversity quotas. But for us, we just have to kind of grit our teeth and kind of let that happen because that's what's going to lead to the progress. And that's what, you know, eventually down the line, we won't need to have quotas and we won't need to force our representation because it will just naturally be there. But right now we, we're in the toughest part of it and you know, it's a, it's a real growing pains for, for a lot of people, I think
1: yeah well, I guess if you look back on human history, you can see well you can, you the fights that have been won are almost invisible i mean it takes you know the fact that women have got the vote or that you don't have to i don't know own property to vote all those things that people fought really hard for um it's yeah, those fights almost get erased by their success um but I guess there's also a real danger in that because. Yeah, it's really easy for I guess freedoms and rights and opportunities to be chipped away at. Um, so yeah, there's a there's a, I guess a real push and pull, but be- between being in- being really embedded in the fight and remembering what you're fighting for, and then I guess celebrating the victory by stopping fighting and forgetting about it.
0: Totally, I think that's a valid about the work of. Um... Uh, The work that people do to kind of preserve all that history too, or to, uh, what's the word? uh, I remember um, Leah um, from Liminal uh, actually said to me about how how important it is to kind of keep artifacts of of movements and of, of moments. So whether they be the flyer for an all Asian panel or, you know, whether it is the whether it is the YouTube uh, video or the, even the podcast episode of people talking about these things, like we need to uh, store them in some way, shape or form, almost time capsule them a little, a little bit and make sure that they're there ready and available for people so that they can look back on it and just go, yeah, look how far, we've come because when you're right up at the edge at the forefront of it you can't see the uh the forest for the trees right
1: mm, totally i mean it makes me think of something like labor day or statues about you know there's a statue in melbourne celebrating the eight hour day you just think well there's a lot of people that are working more than eight hours a day but um and we have the public holiday but you know we really actually should stop and think about about it um and that's just yeah that's just one example there there are so many um so mike what do you reckon is going to create the change that we want to (laughs) see
0: i don't know if it's going to be msg
1: (laughs) (laughs) i reckon it's definitely part of it you cannot discount i don't think you can discount anything with this with this stuff it's just opening one person's eyes even just a little bit i think is you just don't know where that's going to go
0: I think it's, um for me at least, I, my kind of hope is to see kind of more things, if not MSG, more things like MSG. I think um, uh, pre-digital age and also pre-COVID, there was a lot of gatekeepers for a lot of things. Whatever industry you were trying to break into, there was always someone you had to ask to get through it. And then it usually was a very small circle or click of people who made it and a lot of people who were left out. Um, but nowadays people can literally start their own anything online. Um, I feel, I feel like such a boomer kind of talking about it like this, but it's so true. Like, um, I remember, uh, I remember uh, listening in to a conference, uh, that was being organized online and it was called, uh, where are the black designers? I believe. And one of the speakers, um, actually spoke about how, um, you know, acknowledged the fact that. That they were um hosting that conference online and were able to get so many people on board and so many people viewing with such a show for how much of a reality it is to actually find your community online and that you don't need to go through the status quo anymore like you can completely negate um, the your preconception of like getting into uh, the industry or even just kind of uh, finding. Uh, or even yeah like uh, having to have your platform uh, certified or validated by particular people you can literally do everything yourself now and i think through all of these smaller conversations they will just multiply and create re- a reverberation that i think will osmosis a little bit like um the conversations that are kind of happening are so kind of overlapping and intertwined now that that's that's kind of how i see the change happening. It's it's almost letting letting us tell our own stories to each other without watering it down, um, and just naturally, uh, everything else will kind of like uh, go alongside with it. I think.
1: Mm, I just love that. I think that's yeah, really powerful, and that really resonates. And it's also very optimistic, which which I love
0: yeah, says the, says the cynic, right? Oh my God. You, yeah. You're
1: becoming, you your glass is getting so full, Mike.
0: <laughs> I think, um, I think you have to be, you have to be overly optimistic. Um, not only to kind of, to not only, um, want to see, I guess the change, but also to do this kind of work. Like I think if you talk to anybody, who's, um, out there, either whether they're doing a project or not, like anybody who's kind of in this, um, field trying to figure all of this out and to go through all those tough conversations, it's, it's not easy. And it takes a huge toll on people, um, mentally, physically, and emotionally. Um, and I think if you're not, I think no matter how cynical people are in the, in that, in kind of that field are, they, they are like crazy optimistic. You have to be, I think to, to want to do it. It's, it's painful work as rewarding as it is. It's more pain than it is reward. But, um, I don't know. There's a kind of self-sacrifice element to it. Maybe it's a kind of for the greater good, um, kind of a drive, but, um, yeah, that's that's kind of my point of view. At least that's how I kind of take it on. Uh, maybe it's forcing myself to sound stoic, but I think it's more kind of uh, unlearning all of the mistakes uh, I made probably when I was a kid who didn't know any better um, with a lot of regrettable things said and done. Um, yeah, you have to be optimistic to want to change uh, not only the world but yourself too.
1: Oh, Mike, Wow. Beautiful words and great sentiment. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to say?
0: Um, yeah. Uh, go support your um, local Asian restaurants. Um, yeah, it's, we're still as, as, as weird as it is in Melbourne and Sydney to be able to walk around out now and see people kind of like dancing at clubs like shoulder to shoulder. We are still very much in a post-pandemic world. a lot of kind of strain on things a lot of very good iconic um restaurants that have been there for decades on end have disappeared and that's a huge chunk of history that we will never get back um there you know there are very particular techniques um for those type of foods that if someone doesn't open a restaurant for it, you never see it outside of the home so i implore everybody to Take a drive out to the burbs, um, go to a place that you've never been before. Try a restaurant you've never tried before that doesn't have any Zumata reviews and just, yeah, open your mind up and yeah. Support the artists <laughs> more of something good. They're the, uh, they're the real stars, not us.
1: Mike it's been such a pleasure and a privilege to talk to you thanks for bringing your energy and indeed your optimism to this conversation I really appreciate it it's been so great to have you on Dirty Linen today
0: no thank you very very much it was awesome
1: this is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant we air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about